Join me, Dr. Cathy Weston, for my podcast series, Get a Grip, brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. In each podcast, I help unpick some of the trickier questions relating to how we raise children today. How do we talk to children about mental health? How can we make sure our children engage safely with the digital world? Whose responsibility is the mental health education of our children, teachers or parents? These podcasts get me talking and you thinking. I've reached out to today's thought leaders and main researchers in this area and asked them their views on the areas where we need to get a grip. Adrian Burgess is Joint Chief Executive and Head of Research at the Fatherhood Institute, the UK's fatherhood think and do tank. She's written widely on fatherhood and couple relationships and was formerly a research associate at the Institute for Public Policy Research. Her publications include Fatherhood Reclaimed, The Making of the Modern Father, which helped set a new agenda on fatherhood in the UK, A Complete Parent Towards a New Vision for Child Support, and Will You Still Love Me Tomorrow? Welcome, Adrian. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Now, Adrian, uh, many people that I've come across in my work, uh, they're just not aware of the Fatherhood Institute and the great work that you do. So I'd really like you to tell us much more about the place that you work. Right. Okay. So, yes, it's a small organization and that's always makes it um, difficult to be very widely known. Though, Though we seem to be in some circles because I find our work is cited all over the place. So we began 20 years ago now, amazingly, and we were called Fathers Direct at that point. And we had a mission. We said, when we thought carefully about our mission, which of course we did, we thought fundamental to it are two things. One is child well-being and the other is gender equality. All of us, the men and myself, who were the founders of the organization, were really well steeped in feminism. We were just very aware that until and unless men played an equal part in child rearing, women could never compete equally in the public sphere. So we started saying right from the beginning, we're going to support both mothers and fathers as earners and carers. So we're going to support mother's earning, we're going to support father's earning, because obviously breadwinning is vitally important from both parents for the well-being of children. We'll support mother's earning and father's earning and mother's care and father's care and try to get it more equal. The other thing we said in our mission statement, and we revisit it every few years and it never really changes, The second thing was that we want to support every child to have a a strong and positive relationship with their father and any father figures. So there you've got child well-being and gender equality. And we really haven't deviated from that. And so much of your work, I mean, it's fascinating, you know, the different, um, as you say, arms of it. But you do workplace support, you provide free research summaries, you're helping uh, HR uh, departments really develop competitive edge and reduce gender inequalities at work. So it's fascinating and so badly needed. It is, isn't it? And people say, well, where are you going to put your energies? And I, you, you know, we usually say, well, actually, 
to many extent, we'll be led where the funding is. We obviously have to be, but that doesn't sound as stupid as, as it might, because actually, everywhere, it, whatever, when, wherever we're offered funding, it's key. The area that we're offered to work in, it, fatherhood is key. So it may be early years, it may be in health visiting, and we'll go, well, yes, health visitors need to be trained to engage better with dads. It may be, as you say, in the workplace with HR departments thinking, look, let's think about your parental leave policies. Are you giving the fathers in your firm, in your company, in your organization, um, substantial paid parental leave? Because unless fathers have access to well-paid and substantial leave in the first year, the, the household becomes the mother's domain which it often wasn't before the baby was born. And, you know, you're, you're on to this unequal life where fathers are on the outside looking in and mothers are embroiled in it to too great an extent. And in my experience, these fathers often, fathers are desperate to be in there to see their baby in those first months. And, the, you know, it's very, very challenging to only be given a certain amount of paternity leave or, you know, it's, the research from your institute is so clear on the incredible value of that early paternal involvement. I think so. And it's not just from us. I mean, isn't it, Kathy? When the whole, you know, all the research shows this. And I mean, Michael uh, Lamb was saying many years ago that the care patterns are set quite early on. Now, they can be changed. So that let's say you've had a household where the mother has very much been the lead parent and the father has been far more of the breadwinner or totally the breadwinner. It can be later on that if the mother starts to work longer hours, actually the father then is allowed in more, comes in more, however you want to put it. So that the care patterns can change. They're not always set. The mother's employment will be key. But on the other hand, if the care patterns are set early on for the mother to be the dominant carer, she's going to then take any job she does take will be taken closer to home so she can get home more quickly and more easily. This limits her choice of jobs. You'll see highly qualified women then t taking a job, you know, within three or four miles of their home by car because that way it works. And they're, under, and they're working. One, that's one of the reasons that the women don't use all their, you know, their training and, and work below, below kind of professional capacity. So all that sort of thing does follow on from the fact that the mother becomes absolutely the dominant carer. And the fathers, as you say, I mean, they get very involved these days, very hands-on. I mean, it's silly even to ask if a father changes a nappy, but of course they do. The whole narrative has changed. Uh, many of the fathers are now aware that they need to be skin to skin and carry their babies a lot, that... That enables their bodies to become attuned to parenting, just as it is with mothers, adoptive mothers, for example, who aren't pregnant, don't give birth, nevertheless have hormonal changes in their bodies that, that make them sensitive and committed parents through the act of caretaking. There's a beautiful, when I was reading through the research, you know, associated with your institute, it was striking this hormonal change that happens in fathers when they hold their newborn baby for the first time or the hormonal changes when they are living with their pregnant partner. They The testosterone reduces, doesn't it? It does. I mean, it is such fascinating, such fascinating research. I mean, I think the first paper 
on that kind of hormonal changes that accompany either living with a pregnant woman, which nature has made it that a male human who lives with a pregnant woman, whether or not he's the child's father, his the testosterone will drop because we don't want the males killing the babies that aren't theirs, you know, like lions do if they come and take over a pride. So nature's, you know, that's the way it is. It, we've evolved in, in that way. So yes, the first paper I think was about 20 years ago, and there's now quite a body of research, as I'm sure you're aware, that's looked at the neurological changes also in the, you know, so the brain changes, the physiological, hormonal, and it really is fascinating stuff. Uh, and I was talking to a young man the other day, I remember running a seminar somewhere, and one father said, he said, I find that since I've become a father, I cry so easily. <laughs> I said, yes, because that's obviously something that w women have talked about for a long time. And I said, that's right. And he said, do you think it's the hormones? I said, it jolly well could be. But I don't know. No one's ever, as far as I know, <laughs> researched that. But interestingly, I said this to a new father a couple of weeks ago. I, I told him that, that new fathers and mothers both cry much more easily. And he said, oh, he said, that's me. He said, sometimes I'm just looking at her. And I, I cry just looking at her, the baby. Yeah. You know? It's so beautiful. You know, it's so, well, it's so, so precious, that early experience of being with your baby. And I think what's been very striking, even in the press this week, because of the COVID situation, there's a great concern that fathers will not be allowed in the delivery room, that they will not be allowed to be part and parcel of those appointments in the hospital. And it's really concerning, isn't it? It is. It's interesting because we have a survey out in, in the field at the moment, actually. It's, it's on our website, so www.fatherhoodinstitute.org. Anyone can. We're looking for, and we have already hundreds of responses, I think we're well over a thousand responses, but we, it's, it's a survey which is asking parents who have been in touch with maternity services during the COVID lockdown, including now because maternity services are still locked down. So we, we're looking for to mothers and fathers who, you know, they may just be an antenatal now or they may have given birth. And uh, we have a father's path or fathers and partners pathway. We have the mother's pathway and we have the professional's pathway through the survey. And our purpose of putting it out is to actually find out what's going on because you hear we've heard horrific stories as have been in the press also this week but we've had people ring us up mothers fathers professionals some professional very distressed because they're having to professional maternity people they want mothers to be happy and they're dealing with these very stressed mothers mothers who are given very bad news in the scan that the baby has died and the father's, their partner, though he lives in the bubble with them at home, is not in the room. The, I mean, that is the trauma of that cannot be underestimated. Absolutely. Yeah. So we don't know what will happen. They've, the very weak guidance has gone out saying, oh, well, it's up to each maternity service based on what their physical for the scans, based on their physical thing, all sorts of things. They, they say it's up to you, you know. So the the fathers and mothers, I, I we know of of a couples where with the first baby have elected to have a home birth when actually it was a bit risky, but they've elected to have a home birth because 
they have no confidence that he'll even make the birth because they're, you know, they're in many surveys, but we again don't know. So that's what the survey is finding out. But we have definitely heard that, you know, that they're not letting the fathers in until they're actually in the delivery suite, usually from four centimetres. But but sometimes the mother gives birth on the on the labour ward, doesn't even get into the, and they misjudge it. They'll say, oh, no, you're not dilated. And she says, I am. This is my second child I'm about to push. And there must be so much maternal stress associated with the fear of being alone and not having your partner with you. I think what's very striking from the research on pregnancy and fatherhood is that the way in which a man feels his mental health during that pregnancy, it's really very important, isn't it, for the outcomes of the sort of family dynamic and his paternal mental health is, is very important, isn't it? And often potentially not talked about as much as maternal mental health. Well, it's not talked about at all. The father or partner in the NHS and in maternity services all over the world has no status. You know, he's not, he's sort of a visitor, really. There's only one patient or client, and that's the mother. And even though they have to ask him questions, give him genetic testing sometimes, still he hasn't got any, there's no formal recognition of who he is. He, he, he really is just a visitor. And so therefore, they don't even have to put his name down on the mother's care plan. Although once I asked the Department of Health about this, and I said, should maternity services be putting the father's name on the mother's care plan? And they went, of course. I said, well, please put out guidance, will you? Because I'm finding in some maternity services, yes, they do that, but in others, they don't. This sort of ambiguous position of who he is, they're scared to have him there as a name because then they might have to provide him with some kind of service. Now, of course, you or I would know that one of the key things will be whether he has mental health issues. Another will be if he smokes. You know, the the mother's smoking is so tightly tied to her partner's smoking, that if you're just going to find a mother who smokes and refer her to a smoking service, you're not going to get very far. You need to refer the couple. So we are quite shocked at the cavalier attitude or the way these fathers are, even before COVID, and are basically kind of passed over through some kind of embarrassment, through some kind of bureaucratic stuff. I'm not quite sure. Um, And, of course, this is to the detriment of mother's health and infant health, of course. And what you say about the father's mental health before the birth, I mean, that's one of the things that really struck me because there's a researcher called uh, Professor Paul Ramchandani, who's at Cambridge now, and Paul has analysed some big cohort study in the west of England for years to look at what happened because they had data on father's mental health during the pregnancy. This is in the 1990s, and he's been able to track through and find out what happens to the family, where the father's mental health during the pregnancy and after, you know, he, he contracted all the way through, is poor. And what he's found is that where the father's mental health is poor during the pregnancy, there, that has impact on the child, certainly through to age seven, even once controlling for or taking account of whether his mental health improves or doesn't improve after the birth. Just a burst of bad mental health on the part of the dad before his baby is born has repercussions for at least seven years on the child's well-being. Now, 
that's amazing. And then you say to yourself, well, my goodness, how did that happen? Because he hasn't even met the baby. You know, this is before the birth. And of course, what it means is that when his mental health is poor, it affects the whole family. The mother becomes more stressed. Perhaps he can't work and the family becomes poorer. Perhaps they fight more because there's high, tends to be higher conflict when a father's mental health is poor. So the family effects which play out on impact in the child for seven years are, you know, are significant. And we know that, as you can appreciate, sort of parental or paternal sensitivity to their child's needs is very important in the early years. And that sort of responsiveness and sensitivity is much more difficult if you, you know, have your sort of mental health is clouded by Mm. other, um, by depression or other issues. Yes, absolutely. So um, if you're anxious or depressed, you know, you tend to be less responsive, you know, mother or father, anybody to people around you. And to, and that has an effect on the baby. But also, as I say, there will be the family effect because it's likely to be high conflict between the couple. And that itself has a negative impact on the, on the child. So that's all very, so the father's mental health is, is key, but also his sensitivity generally. And I mean, going back to the research that we now have on the um, neurobiological changes when fathers are there involved in their infants, you know, that, that um, is associated, those neurobiological t- changes are associated with sensitivity. And the more involved the father can be, the more, literally, the more time spent, the more he will learn to respond to his infant, of course, the more he can be have time on his own with the infant, so no, the relationship is not being mediated, and he can learn to read the infant's cues. This is all the foundation of top-class parenting, And the fact that we don't promote this is shocking. The other thing is I think sometimes mums can be guilty of kind of doing too much and often not letting dad, if if they're in obviously a happy relationship, not letting dad do as much. So I'm always encouraging parents to, you know, moms to leave dad occasionally for a training weekend or, you know, letting their husband develop in the early days with toddlers and babies. Let him become confident and find his own way of parenting that little person. So sometimes I think it's it's some and sometimes sometimes the mother can can sort of keep the baby to themselves a little bit when fathers are desperate to get involved. They have the appetite, the enthusiasm, and they just need to find their own way through. That's right. Without mum just immediately leaning in to help, you know, so we, we often say, sort of as you do, we say the best thing is, you know, once you're, a, once you're, you can leave the baby for a couple of hours, this is to the mums, you know, go to the gym, go for a jog around the block, go out. And, you know, he'll cope. And the point is that, that you, we all make mistakes and he has to make his own mistakes. I think one of the most interesting things I ever read was that the more confident mothers, mothers who are more confident in the mother-child relationship for various reasons, usually their own relationship with their own mother, these, these mothers are much more ab- able to let the dads in. It's the mothers who are not confident, you know, particularly depressed mothers. And those mothers may hold the baby tight because of the fear of their own inadequacy. I mean, one depressed mother said, um, well, if, if he's good with the baby, where does that leave me? Yes, yes. I remember reading about lack of maternal confidence would often mean that the mother will 
or hold the baby, you know, cling to the baby and not let anyone sort of participate in its daily life. Well, even though those mothers are actually the ones who who most need the support. I think there's also something about the social script around motherhood. I remember one thing that really stuck in my mind, I must have read this, you know, 15, 16 years ago. I remember some American journalist, I think it was, who was a very highly involved father and who had enormous joy from this and fulfillment. And he said, to be the kind of father that I wanted to be, my wife had to be less of the mother she wanted to be. You know, that if she held a very whole, I never had a very strong script, you know, around having to be the best. Yes, but the social script for mothers is generally that. And if a mother has bought into that, which, you know, many and most probably have, then letting that go can be a bit tough. But we discuss all this in groups. And I I have to tell you that when we run, say, a training group for social workers and we talk about all all this sort of thing, there's always someone in the group who says, but look, we'll say, you know, the mother having to give up sometimes the centrality that she believes she should do. It doesn't necessarily mean she wants to, but she feels otherwise she won't be a good mum. You know, and then someone always says, oh, yes, but look, I've got this, my partner highly involved and look, I've got this great job because he's always been there. That's right. That's right. right. So it's both, it cuts both ways, doesn't it? Absolutely. And I mean, I'll often, often have fathers book to see me to talk about how they can be better fathers, more effective fathers. They may not have had a role model themselves, but they have such an appetite to do a great job. And I always say to them, you know, you've got the skills already. It's just spending time with them. You know, every child in the world wants time spent with their parent. It's the one thing that's an absolute surety. Yes, and I think that's one of the interesting things that's coming out of COVID. I think that although the maternity service angle has been awful, uh, I think it's been quite interesting. Quite a number of, of couples have said to me, it's, we were in, we've been in this, particularly up to about not so much now, we've been in this little bubble. We couldn't go anywhere or do anything. He was working from home or he was furloughed or my partner. So we were right in this together during the pregnancy and, and afterwards when suddenly you weren't having visitors because everybody wanted to keep their baby safe and probably not have any visitors for the first couple of weeks. And so in many couples, the mother and father have been very close and, and that's been a really interesting, interesting thing. That's right. And I've had fathers say, you know, the baby was born during lockdown and he, they are loving it, loving the fact they've had to be in their little cocoon. And and so many families commenting to me that it's brought them together, yeah. that and fathers, um, some fathers who suddenly didn't need to do a four hour commute or, yes, you know, are spending more time with their children and they're loving it, you oh. know. It, so I think that people feel a little bit guilty that during such a terribly difficult time that they have been to some extent enjoying aspects of lockdown Um in a way that has enhanced family life. I mean, not not in, in all families, but certainly there's a large proportion where they feel family bonds have been um, refreshed mm-hmm. and strengthened. Strengthened, and it's interesting. We have we just have a survey. We're just doing a out, out of field now. I'm analysing the results, which is called the Daddy's Home Survey, and that has been run through a polling organisation. 
just over 2,000 fathers. And we've actually asked all kinds of questions about you know, how their lives changed, what their experiences have been. And one of the things that's coming through in the, um, as I look at the data, is that their confidence as parents has rocketed. And the more time they've spent with their children, so those fathers who have spent much more time with their children compared with those fathers who spent more time, almost all the fathers have spent more time, um, those who spent much more time either because they're working from home, you know, they're very blessed, the ones who are working from home or they're furloughed or whatever, the much or they're out of a job even, the much more time dads, their confidence and feelings of competence as a parent and I think their sensitivities, you know, we've asked them, are you telling your children you love them more? Uh, all sorts of questions like that. And it's coming out that I, I think it's done the dad's parenting. I don't know about the mums. It's certainly done the father's parenting in many, many families. I would say a majority of families, a huge benefit. I think there has been some research on mothers, again, sort of taking the emotional burden of the of the homeschooling. That's been, I mean, I have many friends who have very, you know, high flying jobs, but they're still expected, they were still expected in the family home to have, you know, managed the three children's homeschooling, whilst that may not have been the expectation on the father. So it's sort of, I don't know why that happens, but in some families, the mothers have still doubled up on that labor during lockdown. It's certainly been documented. Yes, I mean, what's been documented, and um, I mean, I've read every study going, as you can imagine, is that that the mothers have done more of the homeschooling, yes, but that doesn't mean the fathers have done none. Most of the fathers have also done quite a lot of homeschooling. So what you, what you see when you look at the before and after studies is that before lockdown, Mothers were, on the whole, spending about twice as much time on childcare and uh, as fathers. That's the two for one rule: two hours, two hours for mum, one hour for dad. Yeah, has been the kind of. It's not quite as much. It's not quite the difference is not quite as high as that, but it's getting on for it. And and that's the the way it was because mothers work much shorter hours. They have shorter commutes. Even when a mother works full, what's called full time, she's generally working ten hours a week less than the average father who works full time. So it's it's a terrible thing, as I say, because this means mothers are disadvantaged financially through their lives. But what it means is that mothers were doing a load more before lockdown. And what's happened during lockdown is that both parents' amounts of time spent on childcare and homeschooling and so on have gone up hugely, both parents. The mothers... The different and interestingly, uh, the, the fathers have been much more likely to still be in work and to work longer hours, right? So the mothers, sadly, have been more likely to lose their jobs, been furloughed, had their hours cut. So you would actually think, so the mothers on the whole have been more available for childcare. And you would have thought that what you would see would be the mother's childcare responsibilities zipping much further ahead than the fathers, than the usual two hours mum to one hour dad. But actually what we see in the data is the gender care gap narrowing slightly. Not hugely, but narrowing. And I find that absolutely amazing. Of course the mothers are still doing more. They were doing more before. And what you're seeing is the work gap has widened. The fathers are more likely to be in work and working longer hours. 
And yet somehow, because they're maybe because they're not commuting and so on so much, the the gender care gap has not widened. It's actually narrowed slightly. And I think we're we're all very conscious of the the importance of paternal engagement in children's learning. You know that again, as you know, the research on fathers and reading and fathers play with their children, all of those things play such an important role in boosting both academic and emotional resilience. And you know, fathers, um, in my opinion, have always been so undervalued in that role. And yet they, the research indicates they play such a pivotal role in boosting children's academic skills and their sort of emotional regulation, almost everything. Everything, you know, because the, they are the other person from the child's point of view. You know, he is the other person who made me. And these people who made me have got a huge impact, you know, whether they're good, bad or indifferent. All of the so low interest by a father in his child's education has a negative impact. It's not, you know, high interest has a positive in, impact, but low interest has a negative impact. So, yes, you're right in, you know, in all this. And, uh, you know, only 10% of the participants in family reading programs and things in schools are men. Yeah. And so we have often been asked, no, help us. Why have we got only mums? And then you look at it. And first of all, you find that they, they don't have mums who work full time. The mums who are coming to the school to help with the reading either don't work or work part time. So first of all, you find it's not just simply a gender issue, it's a time issue. And then you find that they're not, they just talk about inviting parents in, thinking they're being inclusive of dads, but actually the word parent is used to mean mother so often now that they need to use the word, the F word, father. That's right, yeah. Fathers and mothers in, dads and mums. They're very embarrassed. They say, oh, we can't do that because what about lesbian families? And we go, actually, look, lesbian families, we have spoken to many two, two mother-headed households, if you like, and they go, we call each other, we call ourselves two mums. We're happy to talk about dads. We're two mums. And most children have a mum and a dad, and some children have two dads. We're very happy to talk about fathers and mothers, but the professionals think oh, they'll be upset. Adrian, what about the, the program I think you guys were associated with called FRED about fathers getting involved in reading? Was that something that was an initi- initiative by, from your institute? We still run FRED. We run FRED all over the country. It's FRED, Fathers Reading Every Day. Actually, we brought it in from America. We do a lot of sort of scouting around to see programs that we think will work in this country. And we found FRED. And it is, a, I think it's a, we don't, we like to work with mothers and fathers together very often because the best changes are made when you work with a couple. And we have an absolutely wonderful program we do, again, brought it in from America, called um, Family Foundations, which works with couples before, from the second trimester before the birth through to after the birth. Seven sessions having group sessions with mothers and fathers. It's very active, a lot of, and there's not a, lot, not a lot of sitting around chatting. It's more trying things out. There's a, a, lot of, a lot of work is done on communication between the couple, so helping them listen to each other, respond positively, think about the values that they want for their children, seeing whether those conflict or don't. So, so we get the mothers and fathers working together as a team, and we love to do that. But... 
there we were facing this problem that only 10% of the participants in family um, learning, family reading programs in this country are men. And we could see that, you know, that it's not that the men don't want to go there. It's that the, the schools just don't invite them in in the right way. And that that is really tricky. So we continue to work on that. But in the meantime, we found Fred, which is for fathers and their children. As you say, it's called Fathers Reading Every Day. It's a very simple thing. We've done it in food banks. We've done it in nurseries. We do it in schools. The dads and their kids and the mums often come to, because mums need to understand why it's important and what they're doing. They all come to a kind of open day where they learn about Fred. And then the dads and their kids go away and they've got a little log to fill in. We tried to try tried doing it on online, but they don't like that. They like to fit it in, to fill it in, you know, in, in hard copy. And they chart, they try, they commit to reading a certain number of minutes a day with their child. And, you know, that we talk, they talk about the books. The school has books that will lend them appropriate for the kids. We try to encourage them to find the, the books that are about dads and their children, even daddy bears, and to make sure that those are represented. And then the dads and the children read their books. And then after a couple of weeks, they read a few more minutes a day and they fill out their logs. And at the end, there's a little party where they all come in and they celebrate what they've done. Now, what we found is very interesting. First of all, the fathers love it. They sign up. Secondly, boys love it. So boys, as we know, tend to be behind girls in reading. So lots of fathers and sons take part. Um, thirdly, because the dads are coming in to borrow the books and, and they have something to talk to the staff about, we find that the staff become far more open to the dads. And so what you tend to see is that the school, not always, but quite often opens up better to the fathers who are then encouraged to help with the reading and, and that sort of thing. So I think it's like a Trojan horse, Fred. You bring the fathers in for, for, for Fred and, and, and there they are and the school starts to see them. So I think it's a really brilliant program. We, we train the schools to do it. We have, you have to help the schools understand how to market it because if they they really do need to know that. Um, and we work beside them as they do that so that they'll get lots of dads. And then we do the monitoring and evaluation after. So, Adrian, if you're if you're a primary school listening, a head teacher, you know, how do they work with you? How do they approach you? Are you geographically available? You know, is the service available over a wide um, uh, area? So if, if you're a teacher listening to this and you want to get sort of involved with your organization what can they do well they just google fred father's reading every day or go onto the fatherhood institute website which is fatherhoodinstitute.org and then in the search bar so you know search for father's reading every day or fred and it'll tell you what we do so yes we can do it anywhere especially with what we usually do is have one of our people work with the school in person that's what used to happen and they do a, a sort of training half day with the staff or with those members of the staff who are going to champion it and run this program. And sometimes we did clusters of schools quite often so that, you know, they all come together to do this, have this training. And then we have the materials and everything that they can then use. And we do that. But these days we've started to do it remotely, obviously. And that works too. 
So we've talked about the sort of the importance of fathers, the relationship between fathers' mental health and children's uh, behavioural and emotional difficulties. I'm always asked uh, when I talk about the importance of fathers, I'm often, you know, at the end of a talk or something, someone will come up to me and say, look, my child doesn't know her father. Mm -hmm. She doesn't have a father in her life. And I'm always asked, you know, what the impact of that is. And it's a very, very difficult um it's very difficult to answer because as a criminologist you know my interest has always been in fathers and and sons mm-hmm. and i'm a, a strong believer in in the importance of fathers in children's lives but at the same time there are plenty of millions of people in the country who are raising children alone and doing a fantastic job and they're mm-hmm. not you know um, emotionally damaged by the experience of having one parent i just wanted to hear what you had to say about that adrian well we always say that no father is essential and no mother is essential either. People always are being raised very beautifully by people who are not their parents, their biological parents, right? So nobody's essential. On the other hand, the child who is raised and knows both the people who made me and receives support and love and confidence from them is blessed because that child hasn't suffered an initial loss. Any child who's adopted or fostered or who is raised without one of their parents through maybe that the mother died at birth, you know, or that the father isn't known. I mean, very few these days of people, tiny percentage of people. I mean, they don't know who the father is because most women do not continue a pregnancy through to term unless they unless they are hopeful for the relationship with the father. With two mother families, um, very often too, they know the donor and they want that to be part of it. Some don't. So there is a very, actually nowadays, a very, very small proportion of mothers raising the child without knowledge of the dad. So that, but they are there. And so I suppose what one has to do, if I, if I were doing it, would be to know that my child will experience loss. I, that's even if they have never known him. And so I will, for me, the important thing would be to allow that child and help that child to talk and to answer honestly whatever it is I know, as is also the case with adoption. Not just to, to kind of lock it down, because you can't stop them wondering. They're going to wonder. And then you let those conversations happen. And if children get upset and cry, you give them a hug. And they will generally not be crippled for life. So you don't have to be frightened that, that, that if you let them talk about it, it's going to damage them for life. On the contrary. Once they are, feel at any time they can talk about it and when they're older, if they might want to go and look for their dad, which may or may not be possible, all these things are there in the conversation. And it's really about, I always say to parents, it's, you know, children have a right to know their identity and to know whatever the story is, there's a story and they need to make sense of that. There is. And some of the stories are, are really horrific. And, you know, we don't want the children to be burdened with that too young. And that's why I suppose, you know, it's normally only after 18 that they can even start to look officially. But these days, whether or not they look officially 
because of DNA, because of everything, they'll find them. Do you know? If they're really... Absolutely. They will at some point. But hopefully by then, they'll be old enough to to deal with what comes their way. And you as the parent, whether an adoptive parent or a mother raising a child without, you know, interaction with the dad... You know, it's up to you to to help your child be resilient. And in our in our family, my um, brother in law was adopted during the war, Second World War. He was adopted, and my mother and father in law were just wonderful people. And it was a very it's always been an incredibly successful adoption. And my mother in law said to me, "You know, we we went to the child guidance." And they said, because Alan was just not concentrating at school. And, you know, they said to me, why do you think Alan isn't concentrating at school? And I said, well, I expect he's sitting there and wondering where he came from. He was about 10. And she was so empathic for this child as to what he would be going, expecting. So he grew up, he married, he had children. And when he was in his 40s, he and his wife thought, he would like to meet his birth mother and father, if that was going to be possible. And he tried to track them down. And he was—he lived in Glasgow. And he had an unusual surname. And he knew he'd been born because in the war, they just gave the birth certificate out. He knew what his real name was. And he knew where his mother had lived. It was in rugby. So he looked up the phone, he went to the telephone directories and said, is there anyone by this name living in rugby? And they said, oh, yes, there's one name there, and gave him the name. And uh, he rang the number. And this woman answered, and he said, I'm looking for, uh, you know, were you in rugby during the, sorry to bother you, were you in rugby during the war? Now, he was a man with a Glasgow accent, right? Middle-aged man, no <laughs> accent. Well, he was brought up in Glasgow, but he was adopted in London, and so he, you know, he's from the south. But here, this middle-aged man with a Scottish accent, Glaswegian accent, rings up and starts to talk to this woman, and his name on his birth certificate was Nigel, though it's not his name anymore. And she said, "You're Nigel, aren't you?" Wow. Yes. And she was his grandmother. She wasn't his mother. You know? So, I mean, these connect stories of connection and reconnection, and very often, you know, we know because a lot of research has been done that very often when they do find the birth mother, you know, it's not very satisfactory. And actually, in my brother-in-law's case, it wasn't very satisfactory. She wasn't, it wasn't very satisfactory, but never mind. He was thrilled. He's always been delighted that he did it. Yes, it's a sort of a gap in one's self-knowledge that has to be sort of fill, fulfilled in a lot of cases. And even if the story is horrible, Polly Toynbee, the journalist, wrote a wonderful book many, you know, a long, long time ago called Lost Children, which was case studies of children finding adoptive parents. And one who'd found her adoptive mother in a very bad way still said it was the best thing I ever did to find her because now I know, you know. And for most people, I think that will be the case. And so going back to the fathers, because that's what we're talking about here, you know, they'll find, I think there's a film, isn't there, The Kids Are All Right, where the, these children brought up by a gay couple 
a gay a female couple go and, and actually find their father. And he's a bit of a waster, do you know? Mm. Um, but yeah. the kids are all right. And so your job, I suppose, if you're raising a child alone, which is where we came from, is to recognise the power of the, the father who is not known and and to to help the child work with uncertainty or to work with knowing they may never know them. And to really be there for them, to allow them to talk. In my experience, some children are frightened to bring it up with their pet, with their mother. And I think it's always good that they feel able to, to talk about that person. I think so. I mean, that's our job as the ones who are raising these children. Our job is to work on ourselves. And if we aren't comfortable with that, go get some help so that you know what to do. If you would know you're raising a child and the child is now three and they're saying, where's my daddy? You don't, you're not, you can't shut this down. That's right. So you need to find out, ring up adoption societies, go to your local councillor, the social work department, whoever, and say, how can I find out what to say? Because it won't be that difficult. Now, Adrian, we've, we've reached the end of the interview amazingly, but I want you to tell us what is it that you're doing or working on at the moment that, that you're excited about in your area of expertise? Well, I find the whole thing exciting because I learn new stuff every day because the research is coming out all the time. And also because I find it very hard. I mean, it's, it's awful when you are working, not just champion dads, championing dads in a sort of sunny side up kind of way but the way you are and 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 we are which is looking at the complexity of this and helping people think through this and doing the best we can with what we have so there's always that sense that you're sort of wading through treacle and that is both stimulating at the same time as it is frustrating so at the moment I'm doing the um work around <coughs> these two surveys, the maternity survey that's out at the moment in the field, and then the one that we've just been, where I'm just working on the daddy's home one, which is what happened to dads and their children during COVID. So that's very interesting. But basically, whatever comes up, you know, we, we have our trainings going on still, where we train um, remotely at the moment, yeah, all kinds of professionals uh, to engage better with dads as part of their work, not you know, we have to run a dad's group. In fact, it's the worst way of doing it. Just to think, how do we talk to fathers alongside mothers when they register their child, invite them to come into the school? How do we t- talk to the father as well as the mother? That sort of thing. And then, of course, the programs. We run family foundations and Fred, and we have another one called Hit the Ground Crawling, which is a peer mentoring a program for expectant fathers. So. You know, we love doing it all. Well, it sounds absolutely fascinating. And I'll certainly be making practitioners that I come across uh, that I work with aware of the Fatherhood Institute and all the amazing support and training that you provide. So thank you so much for the work that you do and for joining me today. It's been a pleasure. And thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you. This Get a Grip podcast is brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. www.tooledupeducation.com Parents and teachers in Tooled Up schools can also access notes accompanying each podcast available to read and download from the Tooled Up site.